Thank you, Jim. You're kind of our class Santa. <laughs> well, we um, missed the party on Friday night. We were out of town, but I'm thrilled to hear that it went well and was sorry to miss it. I look forward to uh, next time around, Lord willing. My favorite Christmas music is the Messiah. Of course, it's also my fam- favorite Easter music. It just works for all all religious holidays. Um, but one of the reasons that I love it so much is just because, as Don said today, it's just Scripture, and the power of Scripture is amazing. had the privilege of when I was in London uh, several years ago to see Handel's house, and I thought you might want to see it. So Dan's got a picture. Uh, you know, Handel, what's that? You didn't get it. I, I can't prolong the introduction any more than that, Dan. Okay. I mean, I'll send it to you again here, and let's see what happens. That is going to be great if it happens that fast. Well, if you didn't get it, then... Yeah, it went somewhere. So I can just show it to you here. How's that? Anyway, yeah, it's amazing. You should see it. It's just beautiful. (laughs) But Handel, I mean, he had to write it someplace. There we go. Yep, there's more to it than that. Oh, that, you didn't, I didn't send that to you. You grabbed that off the internet, didn't you? (laughs) Yeah, that's not the room he wrote it in, but that is, that is his house. He's obviously had several rooms in his house, but uh, the room that he wrote, the Messiah, and his, his composing room is uh, a different one. Yep, that's not it either. Keep looking. <laughs> but in addition to um, going and seeing Handel's house, last year Kathy and I took a, a trip to London. We, it was about literally this time last year. And on my birthday, which is the 15th, we went to the Royal Albert Hall and heard the, the big, real Messiah. And it was just fantastic. Um, and what was fantastic about it is they didn't ruin it by asking the rest of us to sing along. <laughs> you know, every time that happens, it's kind of fun to sing along, but then you don't really hear it. But to hear just the beauty of all that, that Handel put into that and to think that he created that in just a matter of weeks is fantastic. So, all right, well, thank you for trying, Dan. Uh, some, some's better than nothing. I saw an article in the Dallas Morning News that said that retail employees of the Galleria are uh, being driven crazy by an unlikely source, and that is Christmas music which plays over and over and over and over in their mind. One employee said, quote, The music makes us nuts. We listen to the CD all day, 12, 15-hour shifts. And even if we leave our store, all the stores around us are playing the same songs. The same article said that in Europe it's worse. 
There are labor unions in the Czech Republic and in Austria say say that the holiday tunes are causing emotional trauma. They're demanding that stores pay them extra or give them two days off as compensation or stop playing the music. Isn't that funny? You ever wondered what the words mean that we sing Enixelsis Deo or Noel or Hark? You know, these are things that we only say at Christmas time. One five-year-old girl named Julie was singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing when her dad heard her singing instead, uh, instead of with angelic host proclaim, she sang with the jelly toast proclaim. <laughs> oh, another kid saw a sign in someone's yard and asked his mom what it spelled. The mom said Noel. And he says, okay, well, if it has no L, what does it spell? <laughs> this is true. These are true. True. Of course they're true with, with children. A little boy named Grant said that he heard a church. He heard in church that there were goats present when Jesus was born. And asked how did he knew that, and he said, goats tell it on the mountain <laughs> that Jesus Christ was born. All true stories. Well, unless we we know French and Latin, we couldn't know that Noel is a reference to birth. It's a word that means birth or a day of birth. And unless we spoke Latin, we wouldn't know that inexcelsis Deo means glory to God in the highest. It takes translation to figure it out. Some years ago, Kathy and I hosted in our home some missionaries that we knew from Russia. And we went out to eat, and they told us this funny story about this Uh, evangelist, this American evangelist that came to Russia who wasn't really, you know, uh, savvy with the culture. He wasn't very sensitive to being culturally sensitive to in his communication. And so he brought his, you know, charismatic passion and, and personality to his evangelism, as it were, to the Russian people, and of course it didn't connect. He had a translator, but the translator was less than passionate. So imagine this you know, very emotional and, and loud evangelist, and then the translator who's just sort of very dull. So for example, I'll give you a couple of examples they told us about. Again, this is a true story. Truth is the best humor. You know, you can make stuff up, and it's not as good as this. So the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the evangelist said, Now I want you guys to give the Holy Spirit a hand. So translate that literally. Give the Holy Spirit your hand. And then the, the evangelist said, I want you to tell the Holy Spirit, Yes! And the, trans- the translator goes, duh. <laughs> Not quite the same translation. The words were there, but the meaning was totally lost. By contrast, when I went to Russia some years ago to teach at a pastor's conference, I had a translator who was magnificent. His name was Vladimir. And when I first met him, he introduced himself as Vlad, and his English was so good, I thought he was from the States. I mean, it's just amazing. 
And he ended up telling me that, no, he's from Ukraine, and he uh, was uh, very much a local in that area. And uh, when he translated for me, it was amazing. I mean, I didn't have to wonder if I was being, if my mannerisms and everything were communicating. If I would gesture with my hand, Vlad would gesture with his hand. If my voice would go up, his voice would go up. If I get real quiet, he'd get real quiet. And I could see the people engaging with me just as well as most of you do. I mean, this is before you fall asleep. I mean, (laughs) Vladimir didn't just translate my message. He translated me. And I could see it in the response of the people. And I gained, by working with a great translator, a new perspective on the Incarnation, on Christmas. And I wonder if God the Father felt a similar satisfaction when he sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus stood and he translated the message of holiness through the means of humanity in a perfect way. In the Old Testament, when God appeared to people, they usually hit the dirt in a coil of terror. But when Jesus spoke holiness to people, they were drawn to him, unless, of course, they were hypocrites. Well, let's look together at the Apostle Paul's version of the Christmas story, and we'll look at Philippians chapter 3. We'll start there, Philippians chapter 3. I'm always amazed, or often amazed, I should say, that people make the claim that the Apostle Paul invented Christianity. This is usually from the mouths of people who aren't Christians or who are critical of Christianity, when the the reality is that Christianity is just a logical outflow of all the promises in the Old Testament, just as the, the musical, The Messiah, shows that it begins with, you know, Isaiah saying, comfort ye my people, Isaiah 40, and goes all the way through the life of Christ and ultimately to the ascension. That Christianity is the natural outflow of all Old Testament promises. Paul didn't invent it. In fact, the church was actually there before Paul even became a Christian. So, but in Philippians, the book of Philippians, we have the Apostle Paul's version, as it were, of the Christmas story. And we're starting in chapter 3 because it's helpful to read verse 1 in the context of Christmas. Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Every Christmas, we often come to the very same texts. We've got Matthew 1 and 2. We've got Luke 1 and 2. We've got these very familiar, occasionally sometimes we'll actually dip our toe into Isaiah 7 or Micah chapter 5. You know, look at some of the prophets that point to the predictable fulfillments in the New Testament. And we come to view the Christmas story as just Christmas texts. These are our Christmas texts. And sometimes I wish that we would, we would share the Christmas story in July, just so we can get out of the mindset that we're supposed to be wearing a coat when we read this. It's, it, this is our December liturgy, when the reality is just Scripture, like all other Scripture. And so when Paul says to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's safeguard for you, we need to remember that when we come to Christmas and we hear the same thing again. 
We sing the same carols over and over. It's just repetition of the same things in our lives. We can sort of get kind of, you know, ho, 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 hum about it all. It can just become sort of boring unless there's uh, something, you know, a, a brand new musical or something that, that kind of makes things peppy. But Paul says it's, it's no trouble for me to write the same things again. And he says it's a safeguard for you. The, there is a benefit of repeated exposure to the same truth. And that's one of the great things about Christmas is that it gives us a continual exposure to the, the marvel of the Incarnation of God becoming a man. So with that in mind, look back one chapter at Philippians 2, verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3, gives us the Christmas story, as it were, from Paul's perspective. Uh, actually, verse 5. Look down at verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Here we've got the eternal Son of God. Verse 6 says he existed in the form of God. This is his pre-existence. And yet, not regarding equality of God, the thing to be grasped, literally, is uh, the idea in the margin. You may have a, a note that says a thing to be utilized or asserted. It's the idea that, that Jesus was willing to let go of that, not of his godhood, but of his pr prerogative, as it were. In order that, verse 7, he could empty himself. That is, that he would lay aside his divine prerogative or divine privileges and take the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of men. This is humility. This is incredible humility. When you think about the fact that prior to this point, the eternal Son of God was omnipresent. And now, forever, he is choosing to be in one place that is, in a body. You think about that. That's still true. Jesus is no longer omnipresent. He is in a body. He is in a resurrected body. And he will be in that body forever. And he, he did that because of us, because of his great love for us. He emptied himself. The New International Version says he made himself nothing. King James says he made himself of no reputation. It literally means to remove the privileges or the prerogatives associated with that status. And this birth was announced first, of course we know, not to kings, not to priests, but to the lowliest of people in society, to shepherds. I think it's funny when we look at Christmas cards. Most Christmas cards are filled with sort of warm, fuzzy feelings. And they have words like tidings, goodwill. Noel, cheer, having a merry Christmas. We don't use these words except at Christmas. These are words that we don't, we don't use any other time of year. We call it a manger because that's a lot better than calling it a feed trough. We call it a nativity, not a childbirth. 
We do everything we can to take away what the Bible explicitly states, and that was, this was humility in the truest sense of the word. I go to Israel quite a bit, and I have a great privilege of leading groups uh, to various places that are significant to the life of Christ, and one of them is Bethlehem. And Bethlehem can be a bit of a pain to go to because it's so crowded and just the political situation that's different in Bethlehem makes it a little bit of a hurdle to get there. But I did go in July, this past July, and it was wonderful to go and finally they had all the scaffolding down. They'd been reworking it. It's the oldest church in uh, the Middle East. It dates back to the fourth century, I believe, with Queen Helena. And so uh, it wasn't torn down by the Persians when they blasted through the Holy Land because uh, they had pictures of the Magi on the wall. And the Persians saw the Magi and thought, oh, go, we'll leave this church standing because they sort of look like us. So the church survived because of that. Uh, because of that. But you can go down into the cave that, was, that the church is built over and very strong Christian tradition points to this cave as being the real thing, as being the place where Jesus was actually born. Jerome actually lived next to this cave, and that's where he translated the Vulgate. So the, the tradition is very strong, and it was a, pretty much a rare privilege. Most of the time when you go into the Church of the Nativity, first of all, when you enter, the door is probably not much higher than this lectern here. They've got, they got the, the head of it very low to where you have to bend over to get in. The thought is no one enters with pride. Everyone enters, you know, bowing. And uh, it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, that's a nice gesture. That's a great way to begin. And we went down to the place in the cave where they've got this star on the ground that supposedly marks the place where Jesus was born. And for the only time and the times that I've been there, we weren't rushed. Usually they get you in and out of there like cattle. But uh, there was nobody behind us, so there was no rush. And we were able to sing some Christmas carols while we were there, and it was just sort of wonderful. And it made me think about a poem that Augustine wrote some 15 centuries ago. Uh, he captured the mystery of the incarnation in wonderful words. Listen to what uh, St. Augustine or St. Augustine wrote 15 centuries ago. He said, Maker of the Son, he is made under the Son. In the Father he remains, from his mother he goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth, he was born on earth under heaven. Unspeakably wise, he is wisely speechless. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant. Man's maker was made that he, the bread, might hunger, the fountain might thirst, the light might sleep. The way be tired on his journey. The truth be accused of being a false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength would grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. 
You see, only a God who loves us so much as our God does would come into the midst of our pain and death and take it upon himself. Look at how Paul says in verse says it in verse 8. He says, being found in appearance as a man, meaning as just a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In, in other words, he was so obedient that he was willing not only to die, but to die the most humiliating type of death and the most painful type of death that there was at that time, that is crucifixion. As humbling as the manger were, was, it was nothing compared to the humiliation of the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the sins of all eternity on his shoulders. Of yours, mine, of our children and grandchildren, and those who are to come. Reminds me of what one uh, mom asked her children. <laughs> she said, uh, tell me what the four candles in the Advent wreath represent. Now, in our tradition, sometimes we don't always light candles on the wreath. I don't know if y'all do, but uh, we don't. But the four candles are supposed to represent faith, joy, peace, and hope. But the seven-year-old, uh, the son, jumped up and says, I know, I know what these four candles are. There's faith, joy, peace, and peace. And, and his sister was getting impatient, and she said, peace and quiet. Uh, children have the best insights. Um, you've heard the, the letters that children write to Santa. Well, I have a few that are favorites of mine. This summer, pretty good. One said, Dear Santa, you didn't bring me anything good last year. You didn't bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. <laughs> Signed, Alfred. Another said this, Dear Santa, there are three little boys who live at our house. There's Jeffrey, he is two. There is David, he is four. And there is Norman, he is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. But Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. <laughs> I love that because Norman said it for all of us. We think we're pretty much good all the time. And everyone else is the one that God really sent Jesus to die for. We really aren't that bad that the Son of God would have to come and die for us. But the reality is God is holy, absolutely holy. And as a result, he can't abide sin in his presence at all. And so any sin eliminates us from being able to go to heaven or to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus had to die for every one of us. And because Jesus was willing to be obedient to the point of death, we read in verse 8, look at what happens in verse 9. For this reason also God exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus was willing to endure such humility and that of the lowest kind, God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus was willing to go to the lowest place. God exalted him to the highest place. 
And you'll note that Paul is quoting in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I've got that in quotes in your Bible. You should have that somehow noted that Paul is quoting the Old Testament. In fact, he's quoting Isaiah. Keep your finger here in Philippians and turn back to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. And on your way there, let's play a little game. I will say a phrase and you tell me what comes next. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. Excellent. Me saying the first part forces you to want to say the next part. That's in your mind. In fact, music is the best at this. Uh, If you want to just get on somebody's nerves, there are several songs that you can sing. And I just really want to do it, just because I want you to think about it. You know, one of the... (laughs) You know that, that, that old song, Istanbul, not Constantinople. Okay, there you go. And that's going to be with you for the rest of the day. Uh, another one, it's a small world after all. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I could keep going. There's just something in our mind that wants to close a loop. You can't sing part of a phrase without ending the rest of it. We have to have that completion. How in the world does that relate to Isaiah 45? Because when Paul quotes that little portion of Isaiah 45, it is like him singing, it's a small world after all. You finish the rest of the song in your head, and that's what you're meant to do. By Paul quoting a little bit, he means to imply the whole thing. Whenever a verse in the New Testament is quoted, We've said this before, it's a great illustration. It's like a hyperlink on a website. You click the link and up opens a brand new page that all was represented by that one little link. So when Paul quotes Isaiah 45, it implies the the greater context. Let's look at the greater context. Isaiah 45, start in verse 20. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, And all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. That's the context that Paul is quoting in Philippians. And Paul told us in Philippians all the, the, uh, that he existed in the form of God. But here, when he takes us to Isaiah 45, we've got this context where 
over and over. In fact, if we were to keep reading in Isaiah 45, you would see a number of times uh, the Lord repeating the phrase, I am the Lord and there is no other. It's over and over repeated. And he says here in verse 22, I am God and there is no other. And notice the, the person doesn't change. When we get down to verse 23, which Paul quotes, that to me, that to me, God, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So for Paul to say to Jesus, every knee will bow, what is Paul saying about Jesus? That he is God. By quoting Isaiah 45, he is, he is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ. He is emphasizing the deity of Jesus. And not only that, look at the beautiful contrast in verse 21. There at the end of 21, he says, Is it not I, the Lord, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? A righteous God. What does that mean? It means that God is holy and cannot abide sin. But he's also a Savior who takes care of the sin problem. So you've got a holy God, but you've also got a God of forgiveness. And once again, that ultimately points to Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul is doing. So turn back to Philippians 2. So Paul is showing the deity of Jesus, contrasting the humility of Jesus in coming, living, dying, and Paul uses Christ as an illustration for us. You see, all of this is not just to say, look at the glory of Jesus Christ, but in light of who Jesus was, now here's a great application for all of us. Look at verse 12. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence, not, not, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, Paul is saying in, in verse 12, it has the idea that just as Christ obeyed in humble circumstances, so then... We also, in humble circumstances, should obey. Just as Jesus was, being, was willing to be obedient, even though he was God in the flesh, and he was willing to die on a cross, that's why he says, so then, verse 12, in the same way, you also should obey. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and we should also. It is a high standard for us. It is a high standard. It is an example. And if you think about it, we are in humble circumstances. I mean, I know we are extremely blessed, but at the same time, we struggle. We really struggle. We struggle with health. We struggle with emotions. We struggle batting down the constant guilt that Satan tries to, to remind us of our sins. Uh, we suffer. We suffer physical pain, emotional pain, betrayal. We struggle. And it's in the context of our struggling that Paul writes to the Philippians and says, in the same way that Jesus struggled, you struggle well. You be obedient, even to the point of death. 
We are in humble circumstances. And when he says work out your salvation, he doesn't mean work for your salvation. That's not what it means. Work out in, that con- in this context means live it out. Work in your life such as a way to live out your, who you are. Work it out. Live it out. It doesn't mean work for it. That goes against everything that Paul teaches elsewhere. But the idea here is live it out. And that's why he says in verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. God's going to give you the strength to do it. He's going to give you both the will and the work, and it's for his good pleasure. It's God who is not only involved in our eternal life, but also our daily life. How do, we, how do we live it out? How do we work it out? Well, I intentionally skipped verse 3 and 4, and after we read it, you probably will wish I would have skipped it again. Look back up at verse 3 and 4. All of what we just read is a reason that we do verse 3 and 4. He says verse 3 and 4, and then he gives the reason behind it. But now that we know the reason behind it, let's read the command. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, have, in this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, everything we just read. So the idea of living a life that looks out for others and to not be always so focused on self, 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 empty conceit, but rather humility of mind, how do we do that? Paul says, look at Christ. That's how you do it. You look at Christ. Look at how he did it. He was willing to be obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Amazing. Christmas is a time of surprises. And I'm not just talking about the, the kind of surprises that we have under the tree on, uh, Sunday, on uh, Christmas morning. There was a lady who was preparing Christmas cookies, and she heard a knock at the door. She goes to the door and finds this sort of scrubby-looking guy standing there, you know, saying, hey, you got any odd jobs that I can, you know, help with to make some extra money? And so she's feeling kind of in the Christmas spirit. She says, well, you know, I actually do. And she pointed there beside him on the, on the front porch and said, there's a couple of buckets of green paint right there. Uh, take that and go to the back. There's a porch out back that I'd like you to paint. And it shouldn't take you long. When you're done, come and let me know, and I'll pay you what it's worth. So he goes, well, I'm actually a very good painter, so this, this should be just great. So about an hour later, she's uh, getting the cookies you know, out, and she's spooning them off with the spatula and getting them all laid out, and she hears the, a knock at the door, and he's done. What do you know? And so <laughs> opens the door, and she says, uh, well, you're all finished. He goes, well... I, I am all finished, but i got to let you know, lady, that's not a Porsche out back. That was a Mercedes. <laughs> Christmas is a time of surprises. How'd you like your Mercedes to have green porch paint on it? There was a little girl that says she likes Santa Claus better than Jesus because <laughs> she says, quote, you have to be good for Santa only at Christmas, but for Jesus, you've got to be good all the time. 
I mean, it's a mentality that God gives us what we deserve, like Santa gives us what, he, what we deserve, that Jesus has got this list of who's naughty and nice. The problem is ain't nobody on the nice list if it's just up to us. We don't get what we deserve. Um, the greatest surprise of Christmas is that we are saved simply as a gift, that we are given salvation as a gift. Paul said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. There is a site in Ephesus that uh, most tourists never see. It's just south of Ephesus, and it's called Prien, P-R-I-E-N-E, Prien. And there's, not nothing, there's nothing biblical that happened there, uh, but there's connections to Alexander the Great. I mean, there's historical connections for sure. But one of the things that is fascinating to me about this place is there was an inscription that was found at Prien that was chiseled only a few years prior to the birth of Jesus. I mean, literally, like three or four years prior to the birth of Christ, that praised Caesar Augustus, who, of course, was the Caesar at the time of the birth of Christ. And Caesar uh, supposedly had... Uh, you know, stars that uh, signified his birth. And, I mean, we don't know whether or not uh, there was anything, any truth to that, uh, that there was anything unusual about the constellations at that time. But the, there's that historical tradition for Augustus. But the inscription that was found at Prien had words that are amazingly and unwittingly contrasting the birth of the Son of God. I want to read part of them to you. This is what was written of Caesar Augustus just a few years prior to the birth of Jesus. Since the Providence, capital P, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things, and that he, Caesar, by his divine appearing, excelled even our anticipations, and the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the good news that came by reason of him. Isn't that just amazing? And the contrast. You can go to the Berlin Museum today, uh, next time you're there, <laughs> and see this inscription. It's right there. But I found it just amazing. You have to wonder if the angels weren't looking at you know, the, the, the Romans who were chiseling this there at Prien, and the angels were just looking going, oh, you just wait. <laughs> In just a few years, the real thing's coming. And the, the, the irony of this false god, the false savior, the false epiphany or divine appearing, and the false good news or gospel um, contrasted with Jesus Christ is going to be amazing. Jesus was our translator. Um, I read about a sheriff named Lloyd Prescott in Utah back in 1994. A deputy sheriff was teaching a class for police officers one night at a local library. And uh, for some reason, as he was coming out of the hall, he noticed that uh, there was this gunman herding about 18 li library patrons hostages into this back room. And so he just sort of slipped in with the other hostages as number 19 and shut the door. And as the 
gunman announced the order in which the hostages would be executed, this uh, deputy sheriff, Prescott, identified himself as a policeman and, without giving you all the details, basically took care of the problem right then and there. And all of the hostages were released unharmed. I read about that and I thought, you know what? That's like Christmas. That is like Christmas. God dressed in street clothes. God entered our world, became one of us, and came and rescued those of us who were held hostage to sin and freed us. On the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed Satan, disarmed him, and set us free from the power of sin. Christ came in street clothes. He put on skin just like us. He became our translator to translate the holiness of God into a way that we could understand. He emptied himself. You and I are going to see some people this Christmas that we don't usually see. That's good because when we think about family sometimes, it's nice to see them just once a year. (laughs) There are other people, friends, that we wish we could see more often. But what if we gave them a surprise this time around? Rather than being like them and keeping the distance and only being around the people we want to be around, what if instead we took on the mindset of Christ and emptied ourselves and became in the form of a servant and uh, went out of the way to reach out to them? There's going to be friends and family for whom we will need to empty ourselves because how else are they going to see the true love of Christ? And if perhaps they ask why you're acting so funny, you can tell them. You've got a good reason. Well, let's bow our heads for prayer, and I'd like to close by reading uh, a prayer that the late great chaplain of the Senate, Peter Marshall, wrote. So I'll read Marshall's prayer and then... I'll close us in prayer. Forbid it, Lord, that we should celebrate without understanding what we celebrate, or, like our counterparts so long ago, fail to see the star or to hear the song of glorious promise. As our hearts yield to the spirit of Christmas, may we discover that it is your Holy Spirit who comes, not a sentiment, but a power to remind us of the only way by which there may be peace on earth and goodwill among men. May we not spend Christmas, but keep it, that we may be kept in its hope through him who emptied himself in coming to us, that we might be filled with peace and joy in returning to God. Our Father, it is natural for us in our culture, and certainly even in our Christian culture, here in our church, with our routine, to just slip into the groove, to sing the songs, to wrap the gifts, to show up at the same person's house, to hang around with those that make us feel good. It's easy for us to do this year by year, and it's fun. It gives us great joy. Would you spread our joy, would you enlarge our joy this year, this time around, as you did with Christ as he emptied himself 
and became a servant. Give us a mindset that would look for opportunities to serve others rather than simply to be served, to encourage others and not just to be encouraged, to be like Jesus Christ, who on that very first Christmas came in humility, born in a cave that others would come and see. Help our lives to be that transparent and that humble. It's a tall assignment, but we've read it right here in Paul's letter to the Philippians, that we are to consider others better than ourselves, that we are to reach out and to not merely look to our own personal interests. Thank you for Paul's words that he did more with the Christmas story than simply say it happened and it fulfilled Scripture, but he gave an application to it that we would be humble and that we would be servants. So with that in mind, Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to hear what we've heard many, many times, but perhaps this time it would have application. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Remember, if you're on Zoom, uh, we won't have any Zoom session next week. If you want to hear Barnabas, you got to be here in class. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.